If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, there's a Bible under a seat in front of you somewhere, and, and I believe that Isaiah 9 is on page 331. Uh, if you're new to the Bible and you're not quite sure uh, how to find Isaiah, if you open your Bible to the middle, it typically falls in the book of Psalms, and then Isaiah is just a few books to the right. Uh, Isaiah is one of the uh, is classified as one of the major prophets. Uh, the books of the prophets are divided into two: the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets. Uh, all those minor ones that end in awe, right? Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Obadiah, Joel, Amos, and others I can't remember right now. <laughs> you thought I was going to just rip through them, right? Uh, no, not this morning. Not enough coffee this morning. All right, <clears throat> we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll read the text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship. We thank you that this is a part of our routine and our rhythm to gather with the congregation and to hear your word in our midst. And we ask that you would speak to us by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would use this to shape us and to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Give us greater understanding of who you are uh, and a, a greater endurance as we pursue you, Jesus, and try um, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to live the life of faith, that we may be pleasing to you and that we may be found in Christ Jesus on that last day. Your word tells us in Revelation uh, 2 and 3 that uh, to those who overcome, uh, they shall receive the prize. I pray that you would give us great endurance as we walk with you. Use this message for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 9, let's read together verses 1 through 7. I'm sorry, yeah, 1 through 7. Uh, scripture says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
It's probably a very familiar passage. If you did an Advent study or you did Christmas readings uh, or if you've been attending church over the last few weeks, uh, we've sung these songs and we've, uh, re- re- uh, we've talked about this particular passage several times. Uh, but I want us to go a little bit deeper into understanding Isaiah's prophecy uh, that occurred about 700 years uh, before the birth of Jesus. I want you to understand prophetic literature and I want you to have an understanding of verses 1 through 7 in a deeper way this morning. Uh, Peter reminds us that no prophecy, that any time a person would prophesy Scripture, that none of that came about by their own will or by their own mind. Uh, scripture says that, uh, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that that, uh, that same word is used um, in the Greek for wind filling a sail uh, of, a, of a ship. And when the wind would fill it, it would carry it along. And that's the same idea, that the prophets didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write some prophetic Scripture here. They would, they would just write, and as they were filled by the Holy Spirit, and led, they would record the words that God would lead them to write. Um, this is different. Um, there is a new age practice where it's like uh, going into a trance and closing your eyes and writing things. Uh, you got to be very careful about some of the new age spiritualism and things like that where this sort of writing takes place. That is not the way scripture took place. God used the natural circumstances. God used their, their personality that comes forth in the writings and, and and yet he filled them with his Holy Spirit so that they could record exactly the words as they were led. And prophets had two roles. They, um, we, we tend to think of prophecy as seeing something in the future or predicting the future. Uh, but prophecy typically was in reminding and calling God's people back to covenant faithfulness. God uh, used prophets to remind them of the covenant in Deuteronomy and the terms of that covenant and to call them back toward faithfulness. Um, But in addition to that, God also used prophets to look forward to events yet to come. And that's the case with Isaiah. He preached to the people that were right around him and his message had uh, current impact. It had implications on their lives at the moment moment, and yet it also had a future reality that it pointed to. A prophet was a handy um, person to have around. Uh, They could see the future, uh, and they were experts in the Word, and, um, and so God would reveal to them things that were going to take place. A few years ago, there was a project called the Good Judgment Project, a uh, professor at the University of Pennsylvania um, had a, uh, organized and participated in a sort of tournament of kinds uh, where people were asked, thousands of people were asked to participate, and they were given um, scenarios of current and future world events, and they were asked to provide insight into what they thought would happen. Uh, they were um, regular people. And, and from 2011 to 2014, there were tournaments held every year as to who could predict these forecasting kind of events. Um, there was a, a top 2% of those who got things right more often than anyone else. And, and of course, a study was done on them. They were called super forecasters. 
Uh, needless to say, uh, military and governments all over wanted to participate and watched closely because political uh, forecasters, um, their level of accuracy in predicting future events was similar to that of chimpanzees throwing darts at a dartboard. Uh, it was not as accurate at all, but these particular super forecasters um, were able to accurately predict things that were going to be taking place. Uh, one um, was one of the best forecasters was a pharmacist. Um, it's handy to have these kinds of people around. Who's going to be in power? What sort of recession events are going to take place? What sort of pandemics are going to take place? If you had the ability to see the future, um, you would live your life differently with a revealed future. Now listen, take that principle and apply it to Scripture. If you have a sovereign God who is all-knowing and, and understands future events, and as you're walking with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, He is leading you and preparing you uh, for future events, and He's written a book for us that outlines future events to determine how we should now live. All of you live your life in light of some future reality whether it's retirement or rent due next month or um, you know, you've lived your life the last month or so in preparation for Christmas and travel and vacations and all of us live our lives currently in light of the future. Prophecy helps us do that in line with the Word of God and the redemptive purposes and the redemptive arc of Scripture. Revelation is not a book to be scared of, but a book to understand and know. And there's a blessing given for that. So imagine Isaiah in 720s, somewhere in there, prophesying and um, telling a current group of people who are under the discipline of God, informing them that their current situation will one day be redeemed. Let's look back at some of the context. Look at chapter 8 of Isaiah. In chapter 8 of Isaiah... You have the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They had already divided, and the northern kingdom uh, was straying from faithfulness to God. From their first king on, there was just a long line of evil kings. Judah, the southern kingdom, had sprinkled within it good kings and middle-of-the-road kings and bad kings, but Israel, the northern kingdom, had only evil kings. You may even put that map up, and I'll refer to it occasionally. Uh, but in chapter 8, the northern kingdom is, Isaiah is prophesying to them that there will be a nation called Assyria, and they will come, and they're going to carry you away and destroy the northern kingdom. That's uh, everything you know, north of, um, uh, of the, this area right here. This is the southern kingdom, Judea, or Judah, and this is the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and, and so you can see there that, that the northern kingdom would be carried away by Assyria and destroyed. And so in the midst of this, starting in chapter 8, verse 16, I'll just kind of catch you up to speed. Isaiah has prophesied terrible things for the northern kingdom. He says in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal this teaching among my disciples. I will wait Wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So even in the midst of this judgment, um, J, uh, Isaiah is saying, I will, um, I will hope in God because he understands that there's hope in the midst of judgment. Verse 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents.
tents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? This is part of the reason that judgment was coming on the northern kingdom of Israel. They were, instead of referring to Scripture, instead of seeking the Lord, they were trying to uh, raise you know, the dead and do all sort of mediums and spiritualism and necromancers and all these kinds of things in order to tell the future. They were not... Um, inquiring of their God. So look at verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and they will turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Darkness. This is one of the key points in this passage that we're focused on. And you understand that this is kind of a biblical cycle for Israel. They, they would walk in the fear of the Lord for a period of time, and they would experience all the covenant blessings and all the good things that God promised, and then they would ease into comfort, and then they would um, slide backward uh, into sin, and then God would bring judgment, the discipline of God, and then it would lead to their brokenness, and then a prophet would speak about hope and a remnant, and it would lead the remnant or the few to repent and walk in the fear of the Lord. And these cycles just kind of kept repeating themselves. But always in the midst of the cycles of sin and disobedience and judgment, there was always hope for the remnant, for the few who believe. That even if all of Israel and all the northern kingdoms should go away, um, that, that there was still a promised few that would experience the blessing of the, of the covenant and of the promise. And so this is Isaiah's prophecy that even in the midst of these, uh, this situation of 9-1, there will be no gloom for this one who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Do you see it up here? Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, this map is of, of Jesus' time, but uh, near the, the Sea of Galilee, this upper, I would jump, but I would, uh, <laughs> this one right up here, um, the upper sea, all of that north is uh, Galilee. And in this area of Galilee, um, he says that contempt for Zebulun and Naphtali was currently happening. Zebulun and Naphtali were northern regions, and the contempt of Naphtali, the contempt of Zebulun, was that they would be defeated. There would be great shame involved for Zebulun and Naphtali. And why is that? The northern regions were often defeated. Um, they were the first ones who would come under attack. Uh, a few years ago when I toured Israel, 
The tour guide, uh, as we walked through the northern lands, he would tell us um, there was an old saying in the, in the land that if you wanted to be wealthy, you went north, and if you wanted to be wise, you went south. Um, you could even kind of tell by the map, the further south you go into the lower regions, Egypt, Idumea, Nabataea, Judea, all that is called the wilderness. It's desert. Think of uh, Arizona. Think of Death Valley, kind of California. Think of some of those kinds of lands. Um, it, is, it is not filled with resources. Uh, it is a difficult, hard place. But north, it was green, and there were trees, and there were mountains, and there were valleys. And, and so if you went north, if you wanted to live north, that's where all the desirable land was. That's where Naphtali and Zebulun and Dan settled. All those places, uh, there was, uh, it was well-traveled. There was a highway that kind of led up the Mediterranean coast, and that it would lead into the Fertile Crescent, right? Remember your old geography? studies about the Fertile Crescent. Um, but simultaneously, uh, that's also where invading nations would come. Uh, if you wanted to attack Israel there at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe, all that had to come through and it was funneled through one narrow strip of land right here. <laughs> northern Israel. And so that's where Assyria, that's where Greece, that's where Rome, uh, that's where Babylon, all these nations attacking would come funneling right down through. So when he says that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is under contempt, it is because they have been completely beat down. And they will have been beat down for these 600 years before Jesus the Messiah has come. And it's against that backdrop of the Lord's discipline and the current hardship and the darkness that there's going to be an explosion of joy and rejoicing. Uh, look at verse 4 through 7 of chapter 9. For the yoke of his burden, in, I'm sorry, in, in verse 3, he says, after the people have walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Verse 3, he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad as when they divide the spoil. Why are they so happy? They're currently beat up and defeated by all these nations. Why are they so happy? Verse five, uh, 4 through 7 gives three fours, right? You see uh, verse 3 starts with the word four. Verse 5 starts with the word for, and verse 6 starts with the word um, for. There are three reasons for the um, explosion of joy that we see. The first one, verse 4, for the burden, um, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. Uh, what's the day of Midian? Remember um, Gideon in Judges 6 through 7, uh, when he is uh, overwhelmed by Midianites, and the Lord, he goes to battle against them, and he's got like 30,000 people, and the Lord says, you got way too many people. Uh, tell anybody who's scared that wants to go home, just to go home. And, and a number of the warriors leave, and then, then he says, you still have too many, and he, the Lord just keeps whittling down his army. Do you remember this? And finally, he goes to the stream and he says, if anybody wants to drink, like, you know, drink and whoever laps like a dog, just send them home. And whoever, um, you know, scoops the water up, then that's the one that you're to go into battle with. And there were only 300 of them. And by the power of the Lord, these 300 destroyed this, um, uh, broke the oppression of Midian. So he's saying, um, when this um, child is born, it will break the oppressor. 
The burden and the rod of the oppressor is broken. That's why there's an explosion of joy. That's pointing to the fact that Jesus will lift the burden of oppressing sin. And the Bible says that we're all slaves to sin. In our natural condition, you cannot help but to sin. You are a slave to sin. You give in to it uh, often, as often as you can, because you're fully saturated with sin. And nothing you can do, even our good works outside of Christ, are done purely uh, and, and in holiness. Um, our sins, uh, our good works are like filthy garments, um, Isaiah says. And so Jesus lifts the burden of sin. Um, in Christ, we are set free from the law of sin and death. And we're free to live in Christ. Galatians 5, you have the freedom to walk in um, Christ without the burden and the oppression of sin. Let's look at the second four. The second reason why there's going to be uh, rejoicing. Verse 5 says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Not altogether clear at first reading what that means. But he's basically saying that when the war is over, there's no use for weapons any longer. There's no use for weapons when the war is over. And so this coming child will deliver you from warfare. And at that point, when the war is over, there's no, there's no use for um, the, the trampling warrior, the garments rolled in blood. All those things will be destroyed. Now you can see sh uh, light shed on that in Isaiah 2.4. He says, when God judges between the nations, they shall then, he shall settle their disputes and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears they will turn into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So Isaiah 9.5 is just saying when the, when the child of promise comes, there's not even going to be any need for warfare. We can lay our weapons down because we don't have to fight in the flesh any longer. We fight according to the work of the Spirit in our life. And then the final four is verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son of, is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child that would be born is a gift of divine grace to sinners. This child that is to be born, I mentioned this on Friday night, this son, this invincible figure uh, that is coming to be that Isaiah is prophesying about. When I talked about him on Friday night, I talked about how hard it is for us as natural parents when one of our children is born, not to kind of infuse our own hopes and dreams, expectations and identity into a child, right? It's a lot to put on a kid, right? But imagine baby Jesus when they came to him and, and these um, kings from the east are coming and they're worshiping him. Um, that's a lot to put on a baby, right? It's a lot of pressure to put on an infant that he will save us from our sins. But, but the Messiah um, would, would bear the brunt of that and, and could carry all the weight of the redemptive history on his shoulders, no problem. 
And Jesus, even as a child, could bear this weight. Isaiah also prophesied that he would be a wonderful counselor, uh, that he would be a mighty God, which is the title for the Lord himself, that he would operate as an everlasting father, the father here being a benevolent protector, um, which is the task of an ideal king and is the way God himself cares for his people, is what the ESV study Bible describes as the father. In Christ, we have access to the Father. And then it says that he will be the Prince of Peace. His rule and reign will bring about peace because the nations will rely on his decisions. He brings peace to the weary heart. And the individual finds peace with God. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All these things would be fulfilled in Christ and are even finding their fulfillment in His kingdom today. It says, The increase of His government, there shall be no end. Meaning that when Jesus inaugurated the messianic kingdom in which we're currently living, that empire of grace will forever expand. From one moment to the next, it is growing. One by one, one soul by one soul, always increasing every moment better than the last. Currently, Jesus' kingdom of grace and righteousness is expanding across the world, and believers are being born again even now, even at this moment around the world, people are populating heaven by being redeemed in Christ. And where this is happening the fastest is in the Middle East and in Asia. We see the work of God evident. And so the, his government, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And the last thing it says about his government is that it's done with zeal. In verse 7, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do that. A zeal that God carries in the expansion of his kingdom means that the final victory is a miracle accomplished with passionate intensity, only with which the Lord of hosts is capable of accomplishing that's how the kingdom grows, through the zeal of the Lord. And it was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, prophesied by Isaiah the 700 years before. But let me conclude with this idea that has kind of stumped me for the last three weeks. Really what drew my attention to this. And that's back at verse 2. So let's, let's just close with this um, idea from verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. I was really kind of captivated by this understanding of darkness. And so I got out my big old word study book, you know, from seminary and looked up every time the word darkness is used. And of course, there are um, a variety of Hebrew words used to describe it. Uh, but darkness is not as straightforward as you think it is. Um, in Genesis 1, the Spirit of the Lord hovered over darkness uh, throughout the Psalms. Uh, and in uh, other passages, uh, the Lord is surrounded by darkness, clothed in darkness, rides darkness. There's a variety of depth when it comes to this term, darkness. But the kind of darkness that is being used here 
could almost be described in um, our understanding of the pre-flood war world. The pre-flood world where the inclination of every man's heart was only evil all the time. Imagine a pre-flood world when every person's thoughts were drawn toward darkness and evil and violence. This is the kind of darkness that is being described. I remember not too long ago, I did a 10-day mission trip in Cuba. And in Cuba, we were discipling um, young men who would go into schools and sort of secretly share the gospel. And we would do these eight or 10 hour discipleship sessions every day for the seven or eight days that we were doing it. And then in the evening, we would go back to our host home and there were maybe 10 of us and we would sit out um, on the patio and we would play dominoes and, uh, and just drink tea and, uh, and talk. And I remember during one of those conversations one night, um, talking about the lostness and the darkness in Cuba. And some of our hosts started to share stories about a village that wasn't too far away. And as they described it, they kept saying it was just one of the darkest areas. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? What is it that makes it dark? And he described not just lawlessness, but uh, rampant lawlessness that exhibited itself in violent crime, in the kind of uh, crime and violence against people that when you see it, you know it as only wicked and as only evil. Treachery, a betrayal of trust, deceptive behaviors, satanic activity. And I remember thinking, we need to go there. We need to, we need to go to that city. And we need, to, um, you know, we need to start praying over that area. I had a similar inclination uh, a few years later when I went to Uganda. And when we were in Entebbe, we did ministry in the city of Entebbe. And um, right on the ground where Idi Amin had massacred thousands of Ugandans, there was a school built and an orphanage built and years later by a, a believing uh, pastor, a missionary. A really great work of God. And so we would work there during the day and then we would go across the lake uh, to this village where we were staying uh, maybe 30 minutes away. And I would spend time with Deus. Uh, Deus was a local pastor in the village where we were staying. And I asked Deus uh, on, on regular days, I'd like to prayer walk in the area in, in this place. And he would say, whatever you do, don't go there. You can go over here, it's safe. You can go over there, it's safe. You can go over here, it's safe. But don't go that way. It's really dark. And I just prompted him, what do you mean by that? This has become kind of a habit for me every time I go on a mission trip. What's the darkest place and where can I go and prayer walk? And he said that those, this little wooded area is where these witch doctors reside and where child sacrifice and other sorts of um, pagan behaviors take place. And he would say, don't go there. And I was drawn there, right? I'm just confessing this now to my wife who probably will never let me go on a mission trip again. Um, but I was led. I just thought I need to go and pray over these places in Cuba and in Uganda. Even when we started, you, you might be surprised to hear this, but even when we started Ridgeline um, in 2012, for the first five years, we had eight 
10, 12 mission teams coming through a year, and we divided our entire area up by zones. Uh, Perkesee, Sellersville, Silverdale, Telford, Souderton, Franconia area. We divided every zone, and every year we would pray through each zone 10 to 12 times, uh, just seeking the Lord on its behalf. And in that time, we would ask locals, what are the darkest places that you know in this area? And, and we were led to places where violent crime, abuse, injustice, addictions, and all sorts of violent criminal and dark behaviors took place right here in our own community. You would be shocked that if I asked, if I told you when we interviewed detectives and policemen in our area, if you were to get a call with this particular scenario describing some sort of violent crime or abusive behavior, where would you predict it would come from? And they would pinpoint a dozen areas in this place. And so we would go to those places and we would prayer walk and we would seek the Lord and we would fast and we would... Um, over a period of time, just ask the Lord to protect those and make the light shine in those dark places. Kensington has this sort of reputation. And in our first years at Riverside, we would go down and prayer walk every year in Kensington. This is the darkest things that you know. What's the darkest place that you can think of right now? Are there places where you're afraid to go? I remember in middle school, we had a series of ditches and tunnels through our small town. And I was always scared to go through one tunnel. It was like 200 yards, and it ended in a deep culvert sort of drainage thing. But you could see as you walked in the tunnel, graffiti that just kind of was eerie, all the things that could have happened in there. There was a place called the Slaughterhouse where a satanic group used to meet. And when you walked into the large opening entrance, there was a big Cadillac in the middle of a huge pentagram with candles everywhere. And, um, and it was a dare for us to um, go over there on weekends at midnight and throw eggs at the Satanists who were in there, right? Um, stupid behavior. Uh, terrifying places to go into. Those are the darkest places I can think about. And all that brings us insight into verse 2. The people who walked into darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Jesus goes into dark places. It could be that the darkest place that you know right now is in your own life or in your own mind or in your own circumstances. It could be that you have a neighbor or a friend or a family member who's contemplating leaving this world because of the darkness surrounding their own soul. Jesus is not afraid to walk into dark places. As a matter of fact, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those who dwell in deep gloom and anguish, who are thrust into deep darkness, 8.22 says, those people who walk in darkness, they experience this great light 
where Jesus himself set up the Messianic headquarters. The application for you today might just be that if Jesus can shine brightly in the darkest of places, that there is hope for you, whether you're in a dark place or whether you know someone who is in a dark place, Jesus goes to dark places. There is nowhere in on earth or anywhere in the universe where Jesus does not have access. John 1, 1 through 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and though all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, even though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God." That's light shining in darkness. That Jesus can come into the darkest places of your life and that he can bring life and light and hope and joy that overflows from you into other people's dark places. If Jesus can shine brightly in dark places, take hope. Jesus also sends you into dark places if you're willing. It was a stranger who came to my house and led me to faith in Christ after experiencing suicidal thoughts because of my own struggles outside of Christ. God sent light, the light of Christ, to redeem me. And if you're not in darkness and if you're in light, he sends you out also with the light and life of Christ into dark places. In that way, The prophecy of Isaiah comes true from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's a lot for a baby to endure but not for the Lord Jesus, who by the word of his power upholds all things and in him all things hold together. That's the uniqueness of Jesus Christ that we highlight at the time of Christmas, is that he was the promised Messiah who was able to bring life and light to a dark world. And so Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. You are worthy to be worshiped because you are the light of the world. In you is life, And that life is the light of men. The light shines in this dark world and darkness cannot overcome it. Lord, my heart goes out to those who are experiencing 
the darkness of their own soul, the lack of peace, the lack of hope, the lack of assurance that they are in your, um, in your hands, the grief, the loss, the pain. For those walking in darkness, we, th- we thank you that there is hope in Christ and that you do not stay away from dark places, but you go to them in order to shine the light of the gospel. And we thank you that you choose to use us. I pray in Jesus' name that we would not hide the light that you give under a bowl. Um, Your word says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so through us, through this congregation, through other congregations in our area, we pray that the light of the gospel would shine brightly. We pray that we would not hide it, but that we would live it and let it shine by us and through us. Lord Jesus, come and use us as light in dark places. In Jesus' name, amen.